Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today. Hi, I'm Don Payne. On this week's episode of Engage 360, we want to introduce you to a key figure in the life of Denver Seminary, Dr. Vernon Grounds. In order to understand and appreciate anything about Denver Seminary, you really have to know something about Dr. Grounds and how pivotal, how influential he was to the history and the ethos of this institution. A few months ago, I had the opportunity in a slightly different venue to sit down with Dr. Gordon McDonald, who has recently uh, retired as our chancellor. Gordon was one of Dr. Grounds' closest friends, mentees, protégés. So we had an opportunity to to kind of revisit the life and legacy of Vernon Grounds through the eyes, through the experience of Gordon McDonald. So I'm glad you're with us and hope you'll enjoy uh, listening to this interview we did a while back with Gordon McDonald about the life and legacy of Vernon Grounds. Our theme this fall is Get to Know Denver Seminary, and so taking a look at Vernon Grounds' life and legacy is a vital way to do that. Vernon was the chancellor here from 1993 until his home going in 2010 at the age of 96. And prior to that, he served as president uh, here at Denver Seminary from 1955 until 1979. Now our guest uh, this week is Dr. Gordon McDonald, who probably knew Dr. Grounds as well or better than anyone else. So we wanna take a look at Dr. Grounds' legacy through Gordon's eyes. And Gordon served the Denver Seminary community as chancellor for about the last nine or 10 years or so alongside his wife, Gail, and then as, uh, or prior to that, as interim president for about a year or a year and a half. Gordon recently retired from that position, much to the dismay of the Denver Seminary community. And he can talk a little bit about that if he wants to. Actually, Gordon's history with Denver Seminary goes way back upstream from those most recent posts and I'm excited to have him on the podcast, both to help us appreciate Vernon Ground's legacy and to let all of you get to know Gordon a little bit better. So we're going to start there. Um, so Gordon, a, just a deep thanks to both you and Gail for the, the rich and many years of service to this community and to many of us individually. We're, we're deeply indebted to you. Uh, to, maybe to get started, you could just say a little bit about what a chancellor is or, or does and then use that uh, as a way to give a, a brief description of your history with Denver Seminary, including Dr. Grounds. Well, the word chancellor is very elastic. <laughs> it's, a, it's a title one might give somebody when they're saying, we want you around, but we don't know why. <laughs> and so when people ask me what a chancellor does, I usually start by saying, well, they run Germany or Notre Dame. <laughs> right. And uh, that gets a little bit of the point. But no, I, uh, I think Dr. Mark Young, when he came and assumed the presidency, was hoping that there would be one or two or three people who would kind of be a bridge from um, the past into the present and that he could uh, inquire of or gain from them some kind of intelligence or information. And uh, he and I hit it off immediately. And so one day I get this phone call that he and the board have asked me to serve and the title they'd like as chancellor. But nobody really knew what a chancellor did, and so I simply picked up the copy of what I knew most about Vernon, that he was a playmaker. He walked around the campus and touched people's lives, whether it was faculty or staff or student, donor, stranger to the campus. 
he had this way of just being on the spot and, and saying the right introductory thing that put everybody to their ease. Mm. And I immediately said, well, that's, that's probably what I should be doing. And it's been that way for all these many years. Well, you've served us well. And as I said, we're, we're deeply you. indebted and, and so, so grateful for the, the imprint in so many ways that you and Gail have left on, on our lives individually and on this community. So tell us uh, a bit about your, uh, your longer history with Denver Seminary and how that intersects with Vernon Grounds. Well, my father was uh, in a generation of Baptists, which were going through all of the historic uh, debates about theology and the place of the church in the 1940s and 50s. And uh, the Presbyterians were the first to go through this, and then that was followed by the Baptist community and the old Northern and the Southern Baptist conventions of the 1920s, 30s, 40s started going through some terrible divisiveness. And out of it came uh, some smaller Baptist groups, including one called the Conservative Baptist Association of America. And that, that organization kind of formed during World War II and after it. And a lot of the formation happened in the East Coast. And the home that my father and mother and, and I lived in, my brother also, was very central. So a lot of the formative meetings happened in our home. And I can remember with fascination at the age of four, five, six, and seven, sitting on the staircase of our home, listening, eavesdropping on these guys as they were trying to figure out where they were going and what was important. And, and the real point of division in those days was the so-called modernist movement that was drinking heavily at the fountain of Freud and Marx and uh, Einstein's uh, contribution to science and to Darwin. Uh, were, was the church going in the direction of this new science or was the church going to retrench and become much more eschatologically interested? And that's, that's where the conservative Baptists were in those days, arguing about uh, you know, the, the song was, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing mm -hmm, through. Mm -hmm. So I grew up in the middle of all that. I, I'm not sure I understood much of it, but the dynamics of it just fascinated me. And out of that comes this Vernon Grounds, uh, who plays a very modern, moderate role. Uh, he understands the world of the arts, the sciences, uh, the humanities. He's sympathetic to the new discoveries that are happening, but he's also very loyal to what would become an evangelical gospel. And when he came to Denver, he didn't come to be president, he came to be dean. And the president died suddenly a couple years later, and the school was on the verge of bankruptcy. Uh, it probably should not have lasted. This was in the early 50s. This would be right. early 50s. And Vernon himself, as he tells the story, came within hours, literally, of turning his car around and going back east and forgetting this because uh, his first reaction was, that this is impossible, it's not going to work. But God seems to have whispered into the hearts of, of him and a few others, and, well, let's give it another shot. And in the next few years, the seminary uh, gained ground, became stabilized. But financially, it was always just a, a day from disaster. And as I've told many times, and you've heard me say this, I can remember the churches in this area taking up food offerings for the faculty. If you'd been a faculty member in that first generation, you probably would have been three months behind in your paycheck quite frequently. So all the churches were gathering food so that you and your family could eat. And I was a part of that as a young teenager. So Vernon 
was in our home all the time, quite frequently on Sunday nights after church. And I, I can't explain it, but even as a young teenager, I realized this is a special human being. Learn everything you can from him. So I would sit literally on the floor of our living room at his feet. And I just loved to hear him talk. I didn't know what he was saying, but I loved to hear him talk. And uh, I can remember saying to myself one day, someday I want to be a man just like him. And he became my model of Christian manhood, of leadership, of the larger engagement that we all have with people. There was just something about his way that I had never, ever seen before. So what do you think contributed to making him the person he was? He was this... For those who who never met Vernon, you know he was a he was a really small, yeah, man from the East Coast, from New Jersey, I believe. Um, but what what was it about him and his background that that helped shape him into that kind of person? On the positive side, I think he grew up in a Dutch Reformed community of people, where there was much respect for education. Uh, it was not the typical fundamentalist mindset that colleges are suspect and all professors are atheists. He didn't grow up believing that. He grew up believing there was great value in a sound education and keeping your eyes and ears open to the larger world and then allowing your gospel to project out of that. So he had a very positive view of, of a larger world that many of us were denied. Mm. And I, that's a reason why I would have loved him so much because he... He was the first person I met that brought what I thought was dignity to my faith. Okay. I, could, I could be the kind of Christian he was describing and where I found myself rebellious against old-time fundamentalism. There's another answer to your question, though. What made Vernon the way he was? And, and in one word, it was suffering. Um, he grew up in a difficult home. I'm, not, I'm sure he was loved by his father and mother, but his father was... a a locomotive engineer for a railroad uh, in the Northeast. And his father was, you know, all with the hands, making things, fixing things, inventing things. And Vernon's older brother, John, was just like the father. And these, and Vernon has told me, he said, my father would take us down to the basement and he would want us to hammer nails into wood. And John's nail would always go straight into the wood, one or two whacks with the hammer, and it was perfectly placed. But when I hit the nail with the hammer, the, ha the nail always bent in two or three directions. He said, there I could do nothing right. And my father would get disgusted with me. And he'd finally say, oh, Vernon, go upstairs and be with your mother. So Vernon felt that rejection that, that any boy would feel when you feel like you cannot live up to your father's expectations. And then he went off to college and... Um, not many people know this story, and I, I think it's time has gone enough that it can be told now, but he, he was falsely accused of a, of a small crime on the campus. And for the better part of a year, um, he was under the shadow of suspicion. And uh, it must have been a terribly difficult and very lonely situation. And he, he was called to the police station several times to be interrogated. Um, and nobody could come to conclusions about this, but toward the end of that year, finally the culprit stepped forward and confessed that this ha as to what had happened. And of course, you know, then the suspicion was taken off Vernon back. But I would say to him sometimes, Vernon, why are you always on the side 
of people who have done wrong things. Why do you want to redeem people? Why do you want to restore them? And he would say, because I know what it's like mm. uh, when you've been accused of something and no one stands by your side and sticks up for you. Wow. So this, this kind of empathy was written into his soul from the very, very beginning. And if he were to walk into a room, his, his nose would first be for the people he sensed who were suffering, the people who felt lonely, the people who felt that they were being put apart. He felt very defensive from the very beginning on the, uh, for oppressed people. And uh, there were not many people like that. And by the way, to conclude this comment, I was one of those people who suffered. My family, uh, my mother and father's marriage collapsed after 25 years. Uh, in effect, I was without a family. I was 17, 18, 19 years of age, and Vernon knew our family well. And on a regular basis, he would take me out to breakfast, and for an hour, he would just prod me open. He wanted to know my heart, the pain I was feeling, and what I should be doing. And in many ways, I survived uh, those days because Vernon cared for me, and I, I, was, I was just one of many. Uh, like that, but it was that kind of dynamic that drew the two of us together. One of one of the comments that was made at his memorial service that I recall was that something to the effect that he had probably more people who considered him their best friend. Um, now, whether that was uh, equivalent or reciprocal, uh, I, I don't know, but he somehow had the capacity to make all kinds of people feel like they. They, they were his best friend. This is in one sense the center of his gospel. Um, here you have a brilliant man, one of the first evangelicals to go out to a secular university and get a PhD and, uh, and to have a mind that just was like a mousetrap. It just snapped shut on, on conclusions and stuff. He was brilliant. Most people doing what he did in education would have probably gone for a life of intense scholarship. But one day I said to him, I said, you know, you haven't written the books. You really haven't overpublished yourself. It seems to me that your scholarship is really people, mm. that you decided to write your, your scholarship on the hearts of people that came along. And for good and bad, uh, I'm, I'm not sure it's, it's all a good result, but his way of engaging people was so personal, so empathetic, that everybody, it seems, that came across his path said, he's my best friend. He understands me like nobody else does. Mm -hmm. and, and he may have sometimes conveyed wrong expectations by, by how close he moved in on you. And I've often said there are thousands of people around this world who, if you ask them, would tell you Vernon Grounds was, was, was my father. And the statue out in the Vernon Grounds uh, reading room says a father to us. Yeah, it does. Uh, that's, that, that was something I insisted go on that when, when it was uh, commissioned uh, because everybody who came across his past said the same thing. He's like a father to me. And I would laugh and joke, well, you think that, but he's really my father. <laughs> <laughs> and, and for me, he was my father. Uh, my father never really was able to strike an intimate relationship with me. So all the way through these years, up until the day he died, he was my father figure. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had powerful conversations over the years. And I remember thinking many, many times, and I'm sure other people felt this way when they talked to him, this is the way a father and a son ought to talk. 
because my father, my real father, couldn't do that. But Vernon knew how to ask you the right questions and not allow you to be threatened. And, and person after person after person had the same experience. And, and, and the closer is this, if you, you didn't see him for three months, the first thing you do when you sat down is he'd ask you questions about the last conversation and you realize he hadn't forgotten. He had, he had kept those things in some vault in his soul. And so the conversation just picked up immediately. It's amazing. Speaking about his academic work and then how he, he brought some of that together with those, those personal features you've just been describing. He, as I recall, he wrote his doctoral dissertation on uh, Sigmund Freud's uh, philosophy of love or, or something, something like that. Something like that. <laughs> None of yeah. us ever really understood it. <laughs> I remember seeing the title of it once. And, and then he, I believe, was uh, very instrumental in launching the uh, emphasis on counseling mm -hmm. here at Denver Seminary, which for its time was, a, as I understand, a, a rather unusual or radical move for an evangelical seminary. Can you talk about that? Well, I think it's things like that that caused Vernon suffering even in the early years of presidency at Denver Seminary because the Baptist movement here in the Rocky Mountain Empire was fraught with um, very, very hot, devoted fundamentalists who really thought that the issue of the day was eschatology. Was Jesus coming and would the church be raptured at the beginning of the seven years of tribulation or after? Um, there was even a sign one day at school because the faculty shared all three tribulational questions. Okay. And the sign said, in the case of a rapture, Dr. Burdick's classes will be dismissed and, and Dr. Lewis's classes uh, will go on as usual and Dr. Ground's classes will wait for further instructions. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there, there was tremendous controversy here and, and people really picked upon Vernon um, I, I'll tell you bluntly, I think they were jealous of his intellect, uh, his broad spread of, of thought. I mean, Sigmund Freud, really? Uh, and I mean, these guys wouldn't even know how to spell his name. Yeah. And they, I, I was in a room one day when one of them looked at him in the eye and called him an erudite jackass. Mm. And it was terms like that. And what I learned from Vernon, and I, I'm drifting from your question, but you know, he never fought back. I never heard him say, uh, any kind of negative word about any of his theological or institutional enemies. Uh, he couldn't bring himself to do it. It was always grace, grace, grace. The worst thing I ever heard him say was one day, he said to two or three of us, uh, of a, such a person, I love that man so much, I wish his church would take up an offering and send him to the Holy Land on a one-way tour. <laughs> and, you know, we all just went hysterically laughing because yeah. Vernon could not bring himself to say anything defensively beyond some kind of humor of that type. But now where are we going with this? He, he took a lot of criticism and uh, he just quietly held it to himself and one by one those people dropped out of sight and the seminary got stronger and stronger because of his perseverance. And, and people just felt the affection and the love that he was able to give. Uh, I don't know, that's about as far as I can go on that. Well, that, that leads uh, pretty, uh, pretty easily into what I'd wanted to ask you about his, his famous quote that also is inscribed on the bust in the Vernon Grounds reading room. It 
so many people are captivated by his, his well-known statement, yeah. here lies no unanchored liberalism, freedom to think without commitment. Here lies no encrusted dogmatism, commitment without freedom to think. Here lies a vibrant evangelicalism, freedom to think within the limits laid down in Scripture. So, so what did that statement mean in the in the context and the time when he said that? Well, you can, you know, I forget the year that that was first said. It probably at a banquet or something. I forget. Okay. But we're in the turbulence of the birth of evangelicalism in those days, as opposed to the old fundamentalism of the 1920s and 30s. Now we're in the day of Carl Henry, who was probably one of the greatest theologians of the mid-20th century. Uh, Billy Graham is coming uh, to, uh, to the surface with his powerful evangelism. And, and Billy is encouraging the founding of Christianity Today. Uh, in a few years, Gordon Conwell Seminary will come out of this. Fuller Seminary on the West Coast has gathered traction as becoming one of the major spokespersons. And so there, the question is, where is evangelicalism going? Is it going to be a repeat of that old 1920s fundamentalism? Or is it going to be thoroughly loyal to the Bible as the word from God, but not be afraid to dabble in the larger world of what Freud and Darwin and these others were saying as they, as they were researching and discovering the world? So Vernon is trying to say here, we are not going to abandon the traditional orthodoxy of the faith in Christ, but we're not going to limit ourselves uh, to that that system without looking beyond it into the world of beauty and the world of art and the world of science and and, and politics if you please and social activities we're, we're gonna we're gonna subject this to our understanding of the Bible and we're gonna we're gonna create a larger more useful faith that's coming into the mid-20th century anybody who didn't live in those times would find it hard to uh, understand how much the world was changing at the end of World War II. A new order is coming in. The British Empire has sunk. The American Empire is beginning to rise. And the whole world is realigning itself. And even as Billy Graham and people like him bring this evangelical movement with Christianity Today and the seminaries, uh, here's Vernon playing a role and saying one of the most powerful statements that says, we're going to freshen our voice to take into account what, what we're learning. When I went off to the university, um, there's just a sideline, and, and this is typical of what was going on in those days. Uh, I was given an athletic scholarship to the University of Colorado. Didn't, didn't go far with it, but I, I, I got it. And I can remember at the age of 18 getting ready to go off to college and all the people in our church coming at me one by one, you're going to that God-forsaken university? Don't you understand those professors are going to take away your faith? You'll be an atheist in a year. Mm. That's the way I went off to college. And, and yeah, these, these were people who believed in e what we called eternal security okay. in those days. <laughs> yeah. you, you, on the one hand, you can't lose your faith, but if you go to Colorado University, you will. Yeah, that's and the, the fact of the matter is I went there to the university, and because of people like Verna, I found Jesus. Wow. in a whole new powerful way in that larger world uh, that Vernon and people like him were championing. And, and in this paragraph, he's, he's trying to speak to this new order of where faith is going to uh, 
engage the world at a lot more dynamic basis. It's, it's a very bold statement, and at its time, it was very controversial. Okay. okay. Interestingly, that seems to be, that statement seems to be part of the ethos that for quite a number of years now has attracted students to Denver Seminary. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You look at the presidents and each one, how they left their legacy. There's been a continuity of all this. But, but I'll be bold to say, in my opinion, if, if Vernon hadn't been right there at the front of the parade, it never would have happened. Yeah, okay. So pu pulling all of this uh, together a bit, what, what are a few of the ways in which Vernon's legacy has sort of shaped the ethos of Denver Seminary as it is today? I hope I say this correctly. I think there's a lot of seminaries in this country that you go to and you pretty quickly get the impression that this is a seminary that deals in ideas and goes to the chopping block defending them. But Vernon brought to Denver Seminary the people values that come along with the ideology. Um, I used the word before, grace. That was Vernon Grounds. He had, he had grace in his heart for everybody. And I think the seminary, as the years went on, picked up this extra um, theme in its makeup of redemption, of restoration, of grace, of um, helping young men and women to become what God's program was for them. And, and the faculty always expressed that. That first faculty may not have had the, the finest scholars in the world, but we students all knew we were loved. And we, I, could, I could fill the hours with stories of certain of those faculty members under Vernon's inspiration who would sit with you and talk about character, about your walk with God, um, the possibilities out in the future if you heard God's call. And I think that all is the legacy of Vernon Grounds and, and that people element, the value of people has always been here. And uh, I've taught enough in other schools to know uh, that's not a given in a lot of other schools. So anyway, so that, that would be Vernon. I think I was thinking in preparation for our conversation today, my first remembrance of Vernon is typical of the lifelong experience. He was preaching at my father's church for a weekend and like a good preacher's kid, I would have been about nine years of age. I was sitting on the front row. And I could, as I tell you this, I can visualize it happening. Uh, he came down the aisle, and here's this empty pew with just me in it. And he comes over and he sits down close to me, introduces himself. My name is Vernon Grounds. What's your name? I'm Gordon. Gordon, tell me about yourself. And for 15 minutes, he paid me a nine-year-old ultimate dignity when most adults talk to you with baby talk. He talked to me like a peer, hmm. and I loved him for it. And then he got up and he preached, and we're talking about something that happened 70 years ago. All right. I can tell you what he preached about. It was the first time I heard a sermon and understood it. And I remember sitting there as he was preaching from Colossians 1, all things are yours, and listening as he talked about the world's music is yours. The world's beauty on the canvas, it's yours. The scientific laboratory, it's yours. These are gifts from God. Uh -huh. Go into those places and bring, bring Jesus with you. That's what he was preaching that night. And I'm hearing this for the first time as a nine-year-old. 
And I never, never lost my love for him from the memory of that encounter. And I think that's what he brought to the campus. Uh -huh. He had a way of dignifying everybody. Uh, no matter where you were, no matter where you were in life, you were important to him. And the seminary picked that ethos up over the years. Yeah. I can I can see that, and that uh, that leads me to ask you, um, maybe on a somewhat lighter note, about the some of the quirkiness of his personality. Those of us who who had the privilege of knowing him, even even if not nearly as well as you did, uh, er everybody seems to have a a sort of collection of Vernonisms. These, yes, they these do. quirky things he would say that were at, at one and the same time so deeply personal and humanizing yeah. and really funny yeah. and sometimes odd. But well, I, want to, I want to get a few of your favorite Well, you warned me you were going him. to ask me that. And, <laughs> and I've been searching my mind for the last 24 hours to remember some of them. And I'm not doing very, very well. Um, but they, they were there and they were in the bushel loads. And <laughs> you rarely ever left his presence without two or three good laughs because he was a master of the English language. To this day, I, I'm hard-pressed to think of any but maybe a few English uh, linguistic scholars and stuff. He had a way of, of turning the English language in a beautiful way. But these humorous statements would come up. And like, for example, if my wife Gail and I were meeting him on the sidewalk, he would come up and he might grab both of your arms like this, pull you in. And then he would say to Gail, is this man of yours treating you well? <laughs> He's being good to you like you deserve, isn't he? And if he isn't, here's my phone number. I want you to call me. And, and it would be crazy comments like that. Yeah. Uh, or engaging the stranger uh, as he walked into the restaurant. Uh, he had ways of saying things that just knocked people off their guard. You know, it'd be, uh, uh, in class, he, he had a way... Some people would call it a put-down humor, but it really wasn't. It didn't deny the dignity of the class. You probably saw a little of this. I did. He, he would somehow just pick on somebody and say, well, now, the rest of this class will understand this, but, but you, Don, probably will struggle with this a little bit. <laughs> and it, it was said in a way that made you laugh, and you knew the spirit with which he was speaking. But you're right. Everybody does have a Vernonism of one type. I'll tell you, this is, I don't talk about this very often, but when I was about 37 years of age, his hope was that I would succeed him in his presidency. And he talked to, you know, it was like a father taking over the family business. And we would talk about it, and I would, I would keep saying, Vernon, I'm only 37. I am not an educator. I haven't been trained in this. He'd say, well, I haven't either. And uh, huh. one Sunday he was preaching at our church and the congregation was all standing singing a hymn. And he suddenly sat down and he took an offering envelope from the pew in front of him and he started writing with it. And then when I sat down, he handed me the envelope. He said, read this and sign it. And the, and the envelope said, I, Gordon MacDonald, pledge that when I am offered the presidency of the seminary, that I will say yes is God's will, something like that. <laughs> and I started to laugh, and, I, and he said, sign it, and I signed it. Well, about four years later, when he announced his retirement, I forget how the years go, um, the search committee to refine his replacement called, called me on the phone and said, Dr. Grounds wants us to talk to you first. 
and I flew out here, and I spent an, I spent a whole day with the search committee. Went back home. Gail Gail kept saying to me, "You're too young. This is not God's call for you. You haven't finished your work back here. You can't do this." And and so I would say to the search committee, "You you need to find other people." Well, they wandered around a second time, and then finally Vernon called me into his office, and he takes out his billfold. And he produces this yellowed piece of paper that I signed about four years <laughs> the ago. The offering envelope. And he says, "Why are you, what was, why are, why are you deserting me at this time?" <laughs> I said, "Vernon, this is just not God's purposes. I love your idea, but it's not me." And it was the end of the story. But uh, and had Robinson came, which was a thousand times a better choice. But uh, he was that kind of a person, you know. He had favorites and. Uh, and I, I enjoyed a little bit of the favor you know, over the years. And he made it for everything that my father could not give me. Mm. He, on the old campus, as I've told you before, he, he had the custom of just walking around. Yep. Uh, when he was chancellor, he, he would um, wander around and harass people and yep. uh, love on them, as people enjoy saying. And he would, if your door, if your office door was a bit ajar, he would not walk. He would. I mean, he would not knock. He would simply walk in yeah. on you, and he did that to me several times. And I remember one occasion where I, I said to—I forget what I was thinking about—but I said to them that I would like to get together with him at some point and pick his brain about a few things. And he said, "Well, all right." The uh, said the file cabinet's full, but sometimes I'm having trouble getting the drawers open. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's just, vintage, so yeah, so so spontaneous and and yet witty. Okay, so what's the deal with the cane? So for, now, for listeners who've been on our campus and been back to the back of the library to the Vernon Grounds reading room, they probably noticed a lot of canes mounted on the exterior wall to the reading room, which is, I believe, only about a third of the canes. I have one owned. of them at home. He gave me one. Yeah, okay. when he, so tell us about the canes. As I remember, the canes really started without any design or uh, strategy. Uh, somebody gave him a cane one day, and it was in the office, and somebody else came to visit and noticed the cane and said, I have one like this, and the next time they came around, there were two canes, and people saw the two canes, and the next moment you knew there were three. And Vernon said to me one day about the canes, he said, I guess everybody's trying to be nice to me, but I can't figure out what I'm going to do with them. <laughs> I mean, so it, it was something that just, it happened spontaneously. Okay. And that's my understanding of the story. Okay. How many do you think he owned? Oh, there had to be several hundred. I, I would think so. Yeah. From around the world. I mean, some very yeah. exotic. Missionaries would send them from various countries they were working in, or somebody went off on some round the world trip and they brought a cane home for Vernon. And So I, I don't know how many have been... You know, he gave away a number of them, and I have a beautifully car, hand-carved cane, and I, I believe it's from Africa. And, uh, in fact, I almost brought it with me this week because of my leg being a little bit uh, in, undependable. And Gail said, why don't you take Vernon's cane? Uh. Uh, well, I decided not to, but uh, it, was, it was there for the taking if I'd wanted to. <laughs> wow. You know, I'd like to add, you, you didn't ask me in such a way that I, I would have offered this, but I, I can't close a conversation on Vernon without saying it. He really was the master of the human touch. He couldn't talk to you very long without touching you. Uh -huh. you I know, remember that. If I was Vernon and you were Gordon and we were sitting like this talk, 
this this would you know he to make a point he'd do this. Or I remember that. And yeah. and and the taste was never the touch was never inappropriate to male or female. Uh, it was the kind of touch that you realized was a touch of affection, a touch of commitment to you, uh, and everybody experienced this. If you walked across the campus with you, he, he most likely would uh, link his mm -hmm. arm like, as like a father might yep. be taking a bride down the aisle. Yeah. And you'd, you'd walk together in that intimacy. And he would pull you in close. He would pull you in close. Um, and and I, I watched that for years. And it became a part of a lot of the way I engaged with people. And it's you and you. It's interesting, and I'm sure we know he and I never talked about it. But you feel some people stiffen when you touch them. You put a hand on the shoulder. Uh, sometimes with an older person, I, I watched him. He would he go like this to a cheek. Just take three or four fingers and just mm. you know graze the cheek in an affectionate way. He he had these touches, and and I saw them, and it became a part of my pastoral connection with people. Uh, but you feel sorry for people who, for some reason or other in life, have experienced something negative, and they don't want anybody to touch them. Mm -hmm. And I don't think God made us that way. I think God made for us to be able to connect in, in, in a physical way. And Vernon was the master of it. He, mm -hmm. he knew just how to do it. And add to that, he was the master of the questions. Yeah, he, was. Uh, he was a surgeon who knew how to take you deeper and deeper and deeper into yourself and you found yourself discovering things through his questions, which were invaluable. Um, and I'm not sure that was just a psychologist at work. You asked about the, the, the psycho psychological mm -hmm. theme here. Yeah, that comes out of Vernon and a few of his devotees who teamed up with him to make that happen. But he, he saw life as bigger than just some spiritual problems. He, he saw life through the eyes of the physician, if you please. And his questions were designed to, to help you to see things about yourself you were not seeing. And I was the target of many of those questions and um, probably made me a different man. Uh, every once in a while, it doesn't happen as much now because we're all in our upper years, but um, I've been someplace in the country or even in Europe to speak, and somebody will come up afterwards and say, um, I knew Vernon, and today I saw him in you. Uh, and you'd say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, when you said that sentence, you said it the way he would have said it. Or when you made that gesture, I saw Vernon in that. And uh, I would go away over and over again thinking to myself, what better compliment could I receive right. than someone would see this father of me, a father of mine in me? Well, I know you've you've said many times, uh, either to me or in my presence, and you alluded to it today, that it became a, an aspiration of yours to be as much like Vernon as you possibly could. And on, on behalf of the seminary community, I want to tell you, because I don't know if other people tell you this, you've succeeded. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you really have. <laughs> you're, that's, yeah. a, that's an ultimate compliment. You, really, you truly have. Now, you're not quite as quirky as he was, <laughs> but in, in every significant way you have succeeded. So this, this, like always, has been a great treat. Thanks, Gordon. Thank you, Don. Um, on behalf of the, the whole seminary and, and all of our listeners, wherever they are, um, thanks for helping us get to know something of who we are as a Denver Seminary community by 
seeing this whole community through Vernon's eyes, through seeing Vernon, seeing Vernon through your eyes. Thank you. Yeah. I do want to recommend for um, our listeners, if you are not aware of this and have not come across this, uh, the biography of Vernon Grounds called Transformed by Love. This was written a few years back by our longtime church history professor, Bruce Shelley. Bruce Shelley. Uh, and it's a wonderful read. You, I, I assume it's still in print, uh, Discovery House Publishers. Um, if not in print, I'm sure lots of uh, used copies are available, so I really want to commend this to, to readers to get in touch with uh, even some more of the details in the history of Vernon yeah. Crowns Legacy. Gordon, thank you. Thank you. Doc. And we look forward to talking to you next week.